I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This podcast on the Searcy Institute Podcast Network is brought to you by our friends over at New College Franklin. Located in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee, New College Franklin is a four-year Christian liberal arts college dedicated to excellent academics and discipling relationships among students and faculty. They seek to enrich and disciple students intellectually, physically, emotionally, and spiritually to guide them to wisdom and a life of service to God, neighbors, and creation. And that intellectual development occurs through conversations in small classroom settings covering the great works of literature, philosophy, and theology, as well as the trivium and the quadrivium. If you would like to learn more about New College Franklin, head over to newcollegefranklin.org. Forma, a podcast featuring conversations with teachers, authors, creators, and community leaders who are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education and the arts. I'm David Kern, and in this week's episode, we're bringing you an interview that I conducted with a good friend of ours, Joshua Gibbs. If you have been a reader of the Cersei website at all in the last few years, you have no doubt seen an article by Josh Gibbs over at his column, The Cedar Room. Josh is a gifted writer and speaker and teacher, and his story is really interesting. So a few years ago, he and I were kind of talking about that, and the way he described the story was that he went from being a really bad student to a pretty mediocre teacher. The way I put it is he went from perhaps being a really bad student to becoming a really good teacher. Um, and that that really good teacherness that is in him, that has sort of um, grown up in him, is something that uh, certainly took some time, but it's also um, something that, because it took some time, it lent him perspective and it, and it helped make him more wise I think the experience the, that experience like sort of a sort of a struggle if you will and that's what his new book is about um, his new book is called how to be unlucky reflections on the pursuit of virtue and we were um, honored and excited to be able to publish that it is out now it came out this week and we thought let's get Josh on the podcast let's talk about his story let's talk about some some of the ideas in the book and some of the things that he cares about so yeah, as usual uh, here on forma this is a pretty wide-ranging conversation but I think that makes it really enjoyable Josh is a great conversationalist, and I think that really shows up here, and I'm grateful that he joined me on the show. I hope you enjoy this episode of Forma. Well, uh, Josh, thank you for joining me on the podcast once again. It's been a while. I think the last time we were talking about movies, does that ring a bell? That's right. I think we were talking about kids' movies. We talked a lot about kids' movies. Yeah, yeah. Again, when watching movies with kids. Yeah, that's right. Um. We um, we could talk about movies and kids movies forever. Maybe we should maybe we should avoid diving too far into that because we'd get easily distracted. That's we're here to, we're here to talk about your your new book, How to Be Unlucky: Reflections on the Pursuit of Virtue. So, and when you were when we were originally talking about the book, and you were kind of pitching the idea, and one of the things that got talked about was kind of a memoir of going from being a 
how did you put it? A bad student to a mediocre teacher, I think was how you put it, but I put <laughs> yeah, a, I bad, a bad student to a good teacher. Um, what do you mean when you, when you talk about being a bad student, like you, were you that bad of a student? Yeah, I was a really bad student. Uh, I, I had a few talents and I, I mentioned this in the book. I had a few talents when I was younger as a student that made school somewhat easy to negotiate. And one of those talents was that I could, I could write uh, a well-turned phrase. Um, and I, I didn't have anything of substance to say, but, um, but I was a decent stylist in high school. Um, and that made me, uh, I guess that made it even easier to be mediocre than um than, than it would have been if i couldn't write you could, it was pa- you were passable like the teachers didn't quite notice how bad you were right yeah, yeah the teachers didn't notice quite how bad i was it was this um uh, as a decent stylist the, you know the style was a was a facade that i could hide behind a little bit and i think that the that the flimsiness and worthlessness of my ideas was a bit disguised um and that the you know the poverty of my own imagination was also somewhat disguised behind um, being a, a competent writer, a competent stylist. Um, but when I say I was a when I say that I was a bad student, um, I mean that I was uh, always quite bored by school, mm-hmm. and uh, that's absolutely not a criticism of the school I went to. That's a criticism of myself. Um, I was never. Uh, convinced of the value of school. I was never convinced of the value of the things that I read and studied. I was far more interested in my friends. I was far more interested in, you know, popular culture. Um, and that made me a bored person, uh, who was also very uh, kind of boring to be around. I, I suspect. Yeah. I care. Someone in my life. And I, I wish I could remember who used to say that, you know, when I said, Oh, I'm bored, he would say, only uninteresting people get bored. <laughs> yeah. Would you say you, so would you accuse yourself of being uninteresting? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not making some case, you know, that I've, I've arrived and that I'm an interesting person. I, I have gotten, I'm sure I, you know, I'm sure I regularly disappoint people at conferences who <laughs> try to strike up a conversation with me, you know, by offering some kind of initial you know, compliment and saying, you know, I like your writing or you wrote an essay that I really appreciated. And I mean, I often feel like I let people down and, uh, you know, I, I just kind of clumsy and, um, easily distracted or so I'm not, I'm not claiming that I've you know arrived anywhere, but I am interested in the things that I used to be uninterested in yeah. or disinterested in. Um, but, uh, but I, I, I couldn't blame any of my teachers in high school for kind of sighing on the inside whenever they had to call on me just for the sake of decorum, like yeah, yes, yeah. Josh, and and thinking on the inside, <laughs> nothing, nothing good is about to be said about whatever it is. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to to reharmonize the disorder that's about to happen in my classroom. Right, you are about to screw a lot of things up for this conversation <laughs> that we're going okay. But all right, what is it that you want to say? <laughs> <laughs> Do were you how aware of that were you as a student? 
Like that's uh, how teachers felt felt about felt about uh, completely oblivious. Okay. Uh, completely oblivious. Uh, I think I I've realized what an obnoxious student I was only after um, having some obnoxious students myself. <laughs> you started um, seeing yourself. Oh, absolutely. Um, that that when I I have some you know on the on the occasion that I have a student who's um, you know very enamored with the sound of their own voice, which I think often happens with with a good stylist. I think a good stylist is enamored by the sound of their own voice. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, I've had students over the years, you know, typically male, typically, um, I don't know, they remind me of myself quite often, uh, who just think that they have more to say than they really do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's not every teenager. That's not, you know, emblematic of the teenage years. I've got a lot of students that have more to say than they actually say. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, on occasion you've got some boy who shoots off his mouth and says more than he really needs to. And, and I was that kid. And I think that I had to encounter that kid before I realized that I used to be that kid. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think I recognized it at the time. So I was thinking about this the other day relating to parenting. Yeah. Because, I mean, my kids are, like yours, are pretty young still. I think you guys are a couple yeah. of years older than mine. Your girls are a little older than my boys. But <clears throat> you see something your kids do and you realize, oh, that was definitely me. no wonder my parents were so frustrated with this particular thing all the time or whatever right do you but so so you you recognized that after you started to have students that were like you yes do you do you look at those students that were like you then or that you know that are like you used to be and does that allow you to know how to to communicate with those students like can you empathize with that student in a way or does it kind of almost cause you to go the opposite way of empathy. Maybe it's not the opposite way of empathy, mm-hmm. but to be more critical of them because you see yourself. Do you judge them more or do you empathize more with them? Um, I think that the judgments I make against them are probably more severe, but that the empathy is also um, more lenient. I, I mm-hmm. And I know that's a, a kind of self-contradictory answer. No, no, no. I think that makes sense. Like, I, I, like but, you get it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I get, you know, the act. I get the... Uh, the ennui, I get the uh, temptations. Yeah, I, I get those because, I, yeah, cave to it many times myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, at the same time, um, I'm also, I'm also very sensitive um, and um, I don't know what the word, I'm sensitive to not using what I referred to in the past is the overly diplomatic gush language that teachers are often tempted to use when talking with kids about their problems. Um, like I I like the word problems. I don't like the word challenges. Challenges is too easy to gloss over. Um, Hmm. uh, the word struggles is also one of those words that I think teachers are often tempted to use when, when trying to just not get to the heart of the matter with parents. And so, you know, for a parent teacher conference, you know, parent and teacher sit down and the, and the teacher says something like, well, you know, Brooklyn's had a lot of struggles this year, but I'm, I'm hoping to see her through and <laughs> it's a growing age. And, and, um, yeah, what Brooklyn's mom really needs to hear is your daughter shoots her mouth off in class and she says a lot of shallow things. Mm-hmm. That's not some kind of generic struggle. Um, everybody has struggles. Telling a parent that their child has struggles is, is meaningless. 
Um, yeah, it's like saying your child tends to eat lunch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. This this distinguishes them from absolutely no other human being. <laughs> like your, your right. child struggles this year. The the best students I have have struggles. Right. 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 So the talented students who care and are obedient to their parents and try to be pious, they have struggles. And the impious, disobedient slackers have struggles too. Well, yeah, there's no point in saying that a town has struggles. So, you know, I would, I, and I don't want to hear that my kids have struggles. I need to know what those struggles are. Yeah. I need to know that my children the are. problem. Right. What's the problem? When you say struggle, struggle with what? Are they arrogant? Do they shoot their mouths off? I, I was those things. That means that they're certainly tempted to it. So when you talk about problems, is it, is it, so you, is the opposite, try to kind of phrase this. You said the students have struggles, but when you talk about problems, are you referring, are you referring more to the idea of the problems that they cause that they make? So because, the, or, or how are you defining problems specifically? And in what way is it different than challenges or struggles? Um, you know, specifically, um, I think that that um, that teachers are going to be tempted to try to couch problems in such a way that does not lead to an uncomfortable confrontation. Uh, okay, I see what you're saying. So okay. if you some some of this is semantic, some of this is word choice, but I think it behooves teachers to choose. Sometimes, not all the time, but it behooves teachers to choose a slightly more confrontational language when talking right. with parents. Mm-hmm. Once they realize that they are tempted to use this gushy language, that it's easy to blow off. So, right. if you tell a parent your child has struggles, but you know I have hope that they'll overcome them, there's absolutely nothing that's going to keep most parents from just nodding their head and moving on. Whereas if you say your child has some problems, period, full stop, then I, any good parent's going to say, like, what? Like, what do you mean? Um, and, and there you get into a potentially difficult conversation uh, be, because it often happens that parents want to deflect uh, problems that their children have. Yeah. Um, yeah. as growing pains, dark night of the soul, nothing to really work on being um, a kid, being a kid, boys will be boys. And, and they, they just don't take it. They don't take it seriously. Um, so, uh, I, I don't know what parent teacher conferences sounded like when I was in school. Um, and I, <laughs> I guess it's possible that some of my teachers told my parents, you know, uh, your kid's kind of a jackass, which is what they had every right in the world to say. And then my parents didn't take that seriously. I, t- I tend to think um, my parents were often told like, you know, Josh is a pretty good writer. He should develop that talent yeah. uh, as opposed to Josh is an insubstantial thinker and <laughs> yeah. relies on style over content and never really says anything interesting. He just says it in a kind of, cursive sort of way. Um, and I, I don't know how much good that would have, I don't know how much good that would have done me, but it was, it was only right and fair that some teacher would have said that to me. But as it was, I often got, and I wrote, you know, I wrote an article about this last year. Um, I often got these comments like Josh could be doing much better than he is. Um, which when a 16 year old boy hears, 
he could be, you know, could be doing better if he tried harder. What he hears is actually, you don't need to try harder. Just keep at this, you know, same level of commitment as you are and everything will probably turn out okay. So how did, how did, um, how did it begin to sort of shift for you? Like, like, do do you, did you, something come to your attention and you made a choice to be different as a student and as a person, or was it sort of a gradual process because of the right influences and all those sorts of things? Um, there, there was a moment, there was a definitive moment where things began to change. Um, there was a point where things began to change for me personally and in how to be unlucky, I talked about a few of the more important moments in my life. One of which of course was the birth of my first child. And I, I'm not convinced that I really knew how to pray before the birth of my first child. I don't think, I mean, I had spoken to God um, and on a few occasions believed that he had heard me, but um, real fervent supplication did not take place until my first child was born. Hmm. Um, And uh, speaking with God in a way that I was confident he was hearing and I was really confident that I actually meant what I said. Maybe that's it, that, that it was on very rare occasions in my life that I actually felt like I meant what I said when I prayed before I had my first child. Yeah. Like deep um, down in your soul method. Yes. That I, I don't have, you know, there were times when I was praying for my child when, it, when I just did not have anything deeper to say than what I was saying. And, and I felt, um, there were times when I felt like um, Orwell in So We Have Faces where she asks, why should the gods listen to us until we know what we want to say? Um, and and I, I felt in, in a few of those moments, the very first few months that Camilla was alive, um, that I actually knew what I wanted to say to God, that, that the, the things that I was asking for were in fact the deepest yearnings of my heart and then it just didn't get a whole lot deeper than that and and so that was a that began to change things um uh, i began to think of myself um more in terms of of someone who could speak to god after my first child but but the moment i mean i think that that was kind of an intensification of a moment that occurred right after i got married um and as I said in, you know, said in my book, I was never really much of a reader when I was younger. Um, and I was a, you know, the kind of student that, that brags about passing a test on a book that I didn't actually read. And, um, uh, and I, I will say that... That's definition of a student who's a smart, bad student. Yeah, that's right. Like when that's, you hear that, that you, that's the very example. That's absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Right after, right after I got married, I was not a book reader, and my wife Paula was. And right after I got married, something important happened, um, which was right after I got married, my wife had a good job at Washington State University, and I was on her health care plan. And I finally got a pair of glasses that hmm. And, and maybe there are readers who also know this, but 
um, if, um, if like me, you grew up with a lousy pair of glasses and didn't know it, and then finally got a pair of glasses that really worked, it's like, it's a, it's a revelation. Um, and I did spoke you, Did with, you have headaches and things like that? Like reading or reading would give you a headache? No, I, I, it wasn't that it gave me a headache. It was that it, it just kind of vexed me where like I read for oh, okay. 15 minutes and then wanted to throw the book across the room. Um, and I'm not saying that there's a purely scientific explanation for that, but after right. I got married, I got this decent pair of glasses and then I started reading books and it, they didn't, it didn't bother me. And I was, I was strangely capable of reading for long periods of time hmm. without being vexed by it. Um, so I suppose that, you know, the material explanation there is that I just needed a pair of glasses. But I mean, I had also been bound in marriage to a reader. Hmm. And I'm, I'm not willing to discount the kind of, you know, mystical explanation for why I suddenly wanted to read books was that I was, I, you know, became one flesh with a reader. And maybe this is also an explanation of why I suddenly didn't mind reading books and, and kind of liked it after you know, 25 years of not liking it. Yeah. And when you, you learn to love the things that people you love, love right too, or you maybe learn is the wrong word, but you, I guess there is something probably mystical about that, right? Yeah. That, that you borrow the loves of the people that you love. Mm. Yeah. They, they pass it to you. Yeah. My wife is a photographer. She studied photography in school. And before yeah. I knew her and actually my good friend Graham is also, that's a sort of a, minor version of what we're talking about here, I suppose. Yeah. But I would never have, I mean, I thought, Oh, that Ansel Adams photo is cool. Right. The right. mountain would be cool. But you learn to her, a love of that art form. Right. Her passion for the things she was learning sort of becomes passed on to me. And I, and I, while I'm not gifted as a photographer, right. I've learned to appreciate and love things that I never would have cared about before her. Yeah. So I yeah. think, you know, I'll never be a close to the photographer that she is. Um, do you, is, is Paula a, here's a chance for you to throw your wife under the bus. Is Paula <laughs> a really, is she a really skilled reader? Like, is she a, is she a, um, does she exhibit as a reader the things that tend to make good readers good at what they're doing? Um, uh, here's what I would say about her. I would say that, um, I would say that she has a bookish personality. Mm. So, um, so in learning to love her, you learn to love books because she has that sort of like spirit about her. Right. So, so, um, I, I don't know how many, I forget whether I've written anything about this, um, you know, for the Cersei website or not, but my wife and I met when I was only 15 and she was 16 and we went to high school together. It's referenced in the book. Is it referenced in the book? Okay. Yeah, in passing. Okay. So, um, uh, you know, I was this, you know, this awful person in high school and she was this bookish person in high school. Like she played the cello. Um, and, and when you, I went over to, I remember going to her parents' house for her graduation party and both of her, her mother's an English teacher and her father's a doctor of acoustic physics at Wazoo. And they're, their home is just encrusted in books. Uh, books are like, 
this um <laughs> you've seen that 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 episode of star trek the trouble with tribbles where like the little things just that's what books are like <laughs> in in their house and their house has this kind of great comfortable slouchy feel to it like you you like imagine. a great library yeah, right right yeah. or or you know the furniture yeah, just yeah. recedes you in such a way that you want to sit there reading a book for a long time mm. and mm. you know her father was almost always reading a book whenever uh, i was over when we were dating later on um but uh you know if, i mean if we go back to josh gibbs at the age of 16 when i kind of fell in love with her um like I wore Doc Martens and dyed my hair black and listened to Corn. What is this? The early two thousand, like ninety <laughs> yeah, like uh, nine, two thousand. Uh, this is like ninety seven, ninety eight. Um, okay, okay. Oh yeah, you were sixteen. Okay. So yeah. Um, uh, so I, just, I mean, I just had terrible taste, you know. Um, and uh, I remember we were on Paula and I were on the same mock trial team in high school. Um, and I remember thinking she is a very bookish person and she made me want to, um, like lead a quiet life. Hmm. And she made me want to, uh, even in high school, um, I don't know, prefer milder things than I did. Hmm. Um, and that, that effect was only, you know, redoubled after we got married, you know, nine years after I met her, 10 years after I met her. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I, I'm not, I, I don't think that she has, you know, really in-depth reading skills. You know, she doesn't read with a pen in hand. She tends to read very quickly, but she reads a lot. Um, and she's read a lot. She's read far more than I have. Um, but she, the fact that she reads just seems very consistent with the with the kind of you know mild and pleasant person she is mm -hmm. and that person was very that personality was very attractive mm -hmm. to me um so i think that's what um that's what was a that's what was about her that made me want to read at least on a superficial level so if you have a bad student then you yeah. need to find them a person right. who exhibits <laughs> all the things that you want them to change into. <laughs> my dad used to, I, I tell this all the time on the on this podcast, various interviews and so forth, yeah. that my dad used to always, you know, when people, we'd have all these books in our house. Our house right. was books everywhere. My dad, you know, there were way more books than any, a person could ever read in their life, right? Right. Um, and I suspect that many of them have been sold or, you know, eventually given off to the kids or whatever. Sure. But he used to say he wanted, he, uh, the things you collect and that you surround yourself with tell a lot about the kind of person you want to be. Right. And then, so that, you know, I've always thought about large people who collect books that have libraries that collect, you know, what you collect, so, there's an aspirational thing, an aspirational essence to yeah. the things that you collect. Yeah. But it sounds like, um, you know, that there's that aspiration in, 
Paula and in the house that she was in and that aspirational sense, that aspirational essence was appealing to you as someone who kind of just floated around. Would you say that you lacked aspiration? And I don't mean aspiration like you lacked the desire to be super successful and have a lot of money, but that there was just generally a lack of aspiration in you? Um, Yeah, when um, certainly not just throughout high school, but... um, uh, but I mean, immediately after high school too. I mean, I dropped out of college three times. It took me 10 years to graduate with a bachelor's degree. Uh, I graduated high school in 99, graduated um, with a bachelor's degree in English in, in 2009. Um, I, uh, yeah, I was in and out of school for a very long time. And, and I mean, that was, <laughs> that was because I went to a really exceedingly mediocre university. Uh, but it was also because, um, uh, I suffered very badly from, um, spiritual malaise and, and acedia and, um, and I just didn't really care. I couldn't really be troubled. I wasn't, I really wasn't that worried about the condition of my soul really until I married. And then, um, then the as soon as I married and as soon as I had kids, the panic set in. Yeah, the panic set in. That's right. Like I had uh, all of a sudden, um, there was this possibility that uh, I might not spend eternity with the people that I loved. Hmm. Um, but, because I always, I mean, I always knew back when I was living you know, kind of risable bohemian life. Um, if I go to hell, these people are obviously going to hell too. Because we, we live the same <laughs> hey, kind At of, least we're going to be there together. At least we'll be there together. But then I married this, this woman who was far better than me and I had kids. And, uh, and the thought was, um, the, these people I love are good people and I am not. And <laughs> so um, if, if I go to hell, these people are not, definitely going with me. Um, so I think that that was a big part of wanting to get my act together, uh, was this kind of, uh, fear that I would be separated from people, um, from people that I love. I'm still worried about that. Like fear of going to hell is still, um, uh, a regular thing that I, I pray about and I work through with, uh, my confessor and fear and trembling right right. fear and trembling um and you know sleepless nights so um do do you think that do you think if you had gotten married younger yeah that that getting married and having kids would have had the same effect on you that's an interesting question like as in other words you know you didn't care so much about the malaise of your soul when you, when you were younger, I think was the way you put it. So you were in your what? Mid twenties. Mid twenties when you got married. So if you'd been 21 or 22, as opposed to, I don't know, 25 or 26. Right. And then how old was, how old were you when your oldest daughter was born? Um, she was born in 2009. So I would have been 28, I think. Okay. So if she'd been born, I don't know, when you were six years earlier, do you think that that would have, I mean, obviously it impacts you differently, but do you think that particular part of it, that it made you just want to be a better person would have, and I don't, that's not a leading question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do. I think, um, uh, I mean, I was like most human beings, I was not ready to get married when I did. Um, and I, I don't know that I've 
I don't know that I've ever met somebody who was ready to get married. I think that's, that might be one of the, the great things about marriage is that you can, uh, you can prepare for it. It's one of those things that you can prefer, prepare for, but not be ready for. Yeah, I uh, guess in some ways you can be less of a jerk, generally speaking. <laughs> right. You're right. Less or more, but um, right. you're not going to be fully prepared for it. And that's, that's maybe... Um, you're um, you're not going to be fully prepared for it. So, I mean, the thought of the thought of getting married. Um, I thought I was ready to get married when I was 21. Um, I uh, had a very serious girlfriend when I was 21, or what I thought was a very serious girlfriend, um, and it and ended up not panning out. But uh, but I was ready. Um, I was ready to marry her. Um, and, uh, you know, that was, she was really my first serious girlfriend and it was, you know, it was good to have a serious girlfriend even back when I was 21. Um, cause it so, made you think about something besides yourself. Right. It, it made me, um, yeah, it, it, uh, it allowed me, um, it allowed me the, the, the capacity to, to think about really something kind of beyond this world. And I, I don't think, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've kind of said this, uh, I think people might've taken it glibly, but I've, you know, I've written before on, you know, what I always say when, when students ask me, you know, what do you think of, um, Mr. Gibbs, what do you think of high school love? Um, and I always say, I think high school love is great as long as it's very painful and unrequited. Uh, I'm totally fine with it. I think <laughs> I think every sophomore and junior boy should be hopelessly devoted to some girl in school and never say a word about it. Um, just kind of painfully, idolatrously pine away for this person, <laughs> like like Dante for Beatrice, and just never speak it. Um, I think that, that could be. I think that I think that romance is good. I think that cr a crush is very good for pretty much anyone um or that it's it's potentially very good um some of the most you know the most ennobling things about high school for me given that i didn't care enough about my studies were kind of these little infatuations that i had with people um and i mean those kind of things are are on the on the one hand they're petty and they're kind of obnoxious and they're pointless to talk about um but, uh, you know, if a 16-year-old, you know, sophomore boy has a huge crush on some girl, that's probably the only thing that's going to get him to iron his clothes and sit up straight if he's not naturally inclined to do it. Right. Um, it might be enough to make him read his Bible. Um, uh, it might be enough to give him you know, better taste in music. Uh, he might buy a tube of chapstick because there's a girl out there and I'm tired of having chap lips and looking like I'm in eighth grade. So I, I think, the, you know, could I think do the, the opposite though, couldn't it? Like if the girl is not, I don't know, worthy or something, it could do the opposite though. I don't think, I think that, um, I think, or, or are you saying that the act of devotion itself is 
the devotion a, itself. I, the the yeah. devotion itself. So, so I'm, you know, I'm kind of following the, um, the sweet new style poets uh, of of Dante's era, who yeah. were trying to um, redeem courtly love, um, and you know, this is Bernard of Clairvaux and a lot of the cult of Mary that emerges in the you know. 12th, 13th, 14th century, is this attempt to get men to think of um, to think of women in a non-sexual, platonic, and idealized way, and uh, the woman becomes this uh, icon of God's mercy, um, and the woman is interpreted as this kind of perfect person. Um, as is, you know, true of Dante and Beatrice. I think everybody, everybody has to decide for themselves when they're reading the comedy about whether Dante goes too far. Um, most people today, I think, uh, would claim that Dante goes too far in his devotion to Beatrice. I'm not one of those people. Uh, I think that the fact that Beatrice ultimately delivers Dante into the hands of Bernard, who delivers him into the hands of Mary, who delivers him into the beatific vision, and that God is ultimately at the end of this, um, justifies his devotion uh, to Beatrice. So um, I've also never had much time for um, the, uh, you know, I think every guy has probably (laughs) heard of the, you know, the the classmate who gets dumped uh, because the girl says, um, I realized that I cared more about you than about Jesus, so I had to dump you. Um, I've never, never bought that line of argument. Uh, I find it even for all the lenience that must be given a 16 year old girl. I think it's profoundly petty to say something like that. Um, because most human beings love their children more than they love God. And like, what are you going to do when you're 29 and you have a child and you realize that you love your little child more than you love God? What are you supposed to do then? Uh, Hmm. well, you know, most people, just care about other human beings more than they care about God. And that's a, that's a thing to be overcome, not a thing to be indulged. But um, I, I, I think that it's more of a, a cross to bear than it is a thing to run away from. So, uh, I mean, obviously you get some guys who are kind of creepy, but um, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to write some you know blank check for that. But I mean, it's for this reason that I think that the greatest devotion, at least in high school, is this kind of unspoken, purely internalized thing that no one ever really finds out about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that there's great examples from literature of these kinds of things where um, you've got, it's often a man, maybe because, you know, um, men have contributed more books to the Western canon than women have, but there's some man who, you know, carries a torch for some woman for a long time and never says anything about it. And it comes as something of a surprise when it's, it's finally revealed. And you can tell often in the moment of the revelation that this, this quiet suffering devotion has ennobled the man. And Mm. it's not, um, it's not tearing him apart in a way that will not heal him stronger than he was in the first place. So, uh, I, you know, I, I could, I could point to a few moments in my life where, you know, a petty crush was an ennobling thing. So to get 
all the way back to your, around to your original question. Uh, I'm glad I didn't marry younger, but all things being equal, would I be better off today at the age of 37 if I had married younger? Yeah, I think I, I think I would have been. I think I would be. I guess you'd have more years of practice. Exactly. So to speak. Yeah. So w- let's talk a little bit about shift gears slightly because yep. for time sake, yep. but um, one of the things that you, you talk about in the book about that, that sort of changed your life for yeah. lack of a better word, made you yeah. helped you go from bad student to a, to a good teacher. I'll, I'll say good teacher, teacher. <laughs> yeah. um, was um, when you discovered um, uh, the constellation. Yeah. So we're True. talking the constellation of philosophy, philosophy. right? Boethius book or Bethius book, depending on how yeah. you want to pronounce it. How do you pronounce it? I would say Boethius. Okay. So we'll say Boethius for this show. I've been here. I've heard the same. I've heard about three different versions of each, you know, three different people say each of those things. So now I'm even more confused than normal, right. <laughs> um, but we'll go with Boethius since that's what you say. And uh, so you discovered, you say in the book that you discovered the constellation yeah. relatively early in your teaching career, right? That's, that's correct. And it sort of changed the way you thought about both books and about teaching. Was that, is that a fair way of putting it? And yeah, I, I would say so. Absolutely. So, well, why? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and you know, the book's about that. Don't tell the whole story of the book, but. Right. Um, well, the book is very humble. And I think that that's, that that's the most important aspect of the book that I found compelling was that this is a man. And Bo- the, you mean the constellation of philosophy? Yeah. The, the constellation book is huff, humble. No. Um, Boethius is humble. I'm trying to be like <laughs> Boethius. Readers can decide for themselves whether it's a, a successful homage to Boethius. Um, but Boethius is very willing to slay his own ego as he draws close to death. He does not do much of a, he doesn't do a very good job defending himself. And he presents himself as kind of a petty person throughout the book. Um, and of course, we, I mean, we have to ask whether a petty person could actually present himself as a petty person. I don't know. Um, that would be our judgment to make, not, not his. But he presents himself. The character of Boethius in The Constellation is this petty person uh, who makes a paltry attempt to defend his honor and nobility for about the first third of the book. Uh, but really kind of gives up on that pretty early. Um, he ceases to defend himself uh, really beyond, mm, I think probably beyond book two in the Constellation. Um, he doesn't really defend himself. And he begins to slowly acknowledge uh, that he has a lot of repenting and turning to do in his last few days before he dies. Mm. Um, and uh, I found that incredibly moving. I found it, you know, very moving at the age of, you know, 28, 29 to read this story uh, because the, the constellation is something of a story. It's a dialogue between fictional characters. Um, to read this, this story about a man who on his deathbed um, had the wherewithal to write the constellation, but also uh, the humility to, to present his life as largely having been wasted. Um, and he, I think that Boethius more or less admits that his life was wasted because, uh, on his deathbed, he, he admits that he did care too much about earthly glory and he had justified his pursuit of earthly glory through many different kind of spacious means. Um, Hmm. 
but but in the end he he admits it yeah all this i did for human glory and i've got a lot of turning to do at least intellectual turning before i die that my soul might be properly postured um toward god so that so that death is not terrible for me um and and you know as as somebody who was i mean i read the book at a time when it it only makes sense that people would start looking back when you have your first child right i i, I don't i don't know how any sane person cannot make a very full reevaluation of who they are and what they've done when they have a child mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um yeah. but having a child is is um is a second chance i think um it's a you know it's a chance everything changes um it's almost i mean the moment that you have a child is almost really like if if all of human history is like a human life and if a human life is like human history uh, the moment that your child is born is is like the the moment of the incarnation it it's christmas whenever your child is born mm. and and all the rules change you know with the incarnation um and this this new thing begins in in human history where there's this great reconciliation that starts and we get the sense throughout the book of acts that that the old ways are are dying and you know the the oracle at delphi dries up and the, and the pagan gods have their teeth broken and and there's this new way of doing things and the cathedrals are built and um uh religion comes to mean something very different given that we serve an omnipresent god as opposed to a circumscribed god and i think that all those changes that take place in human history are kind of mirrored when you're when your child is born it's like the nativity you know um and uh and so you know i i was having this this kind of moment while i was reading the constellation or teaching the constellation for the first time hmm. and it was it was like all of these things aligned so that i could receive the book with gratitude and and i was i was glad for the opportunity to look back over my life and you know chagrin most of it and and to you know be done with with a lot of it so so you like Boethius in the book, you're looking back at what you've done with your life to this point. But unlike Boethius, you're right. kind of being given a second chance, whereas Boethius is basically, right. again, he's been condemned. Right. Boethius will not get a chance to go back uh, to Rome and um, see his two sons with new eyes and, and appreciate his wife um, the way that he ought to. But but he does have what he needs. He has a few days left um, to spend in prayer. And and that's kind of the impression that I get when the book concludes. He might only be, I don't know, hours away from death. Um, I, and I don't know historically what the, what the length of time was between the finishing the constellation and his, and his execution. Um, but I have to imagine that a lot of it was just spent, in prayer uh i mean there's nothing else to do (laughs) nothing else to do in a jail cell um 
So, but he does have what he needs. He can make it, you know, he can make it right with God if, um, you know, I mean, if the, if the thief crucified beside Christ had enough time to make it right, I think Boethius had enough time to, you know, begin making it right at very least. Mm. Um, but he was doing it on his own. Whereas I've, you know, been given at least nine years now in which to try to, you know, live a more honorable life, a more noble life, a life that I'm not so embarrassed by. So did, did you love, I mean, did you love that book right away or was it more something you were so struck by and sort of intrigued, yeah, thought, yeah. thought provoking to you? It made sense. I, I have to say, uh, not every book that I taught those first few years made sense to me on a first read. I, I didn't understand Burke's reflections when I read it. I didn't understand. You didn't understand Burke the first time you read it? No, I hated Burke the first time I read it. Now, he's <laughs> my favorite uh, political philosopher. But um, I, I have to say, the Constellation did make sense to me the moment that I started reading it. And I, I think that... Yeah, that's um, interesting. It, yeah, it, it, there was no... I mean, I you know read the book 10 times by now, and, and it makes a different sort... The book makes a different sort of sense to me now, mm. but... Um, like a this, intellectual sense now, perhaps? Yeah. That maybe it wasn't intellectual at the beginning? Right. I understand. So if you, you know, if, if listeners have not read the consolation, the consolation is divided up in, into five books and the first three books of the consolation will make sense to you the moment you read them. Mm-hmm. The last two books are more metaphysical and they will not make sense to you the first time you read them. So the first time I picked up the consolation and I was, and I was reading it, um, it like I remark in, in how to be unlucky, um, you will encounter things, if, even if you're only 18, if you're 18 and you've spent most of your life watching, you know, Cribs on MTV, the first book of The Consolation will still contain a number of philosophical claims that are familiar to you. That's how omnipresent the wisdom of this book has become in the 1500 years since it was written. It's, it's just everywhere. Um, Basic things that you say to somebody when they fall and scrape their knee come from Boethius. Uh, it could be worse. Uh, there's plenty of fish in the sea. Um, uh, things can only get better from here. I mean, these are all Boethian ideas. They're not, they sound biblical. Um, uh, count your blessings is one of my favorite Boethian ideas. Not a biblical idea. I mean, you're, there are things about gratitude in scripture, but counting your blessings, count your blessings, not a biblical idea. That's Boethian. Um, and, and everybody's been told, you know, count your blessings that you don't have to be a Christian to know, count your blessings. You don't have to be a Christian to know that counting your blessings will make you feel better. Um, you don't have to be a Christian to know that contemplating the fact that things could be worse makes you feel better. Um, and, and the first three books of the constellation are just kind of chock full with explanations of why these things, these claims make us feel better. So, um, you know, you don't, you don't need to know anything about philosophy. You don't have to be a good, smart person to jump into the consolation and immediately understand the gist of the, of the book. I mean, that changes when you get closer to the end, but, um, the, the book is, let me think about this for just a second. I'm going to go ahead and say the consolation of philosophy, at least the first three fifths of the book is, uh, 
aside from maybe the book of Ecclesiastes, it's as accessible as philosophy gets. I can't, I can't, um, maybe the little prince is more accessible philosophy. (laughs) I don't know. There's, there's stuff in the little prince that I still think is kind of obtuse, uh, where (laughs) pretty much everything in the first, uh, three books of the constellation, I think makes sense on the surface. So how do your students respond to it? Um, my students tend to like the constellation quite a bit. Um, I, I, I certainly spent a long time teaching it. Um, it's a book that I teach early in the year and proportionally I spend a longer time on it. Um, but I think by the time I'm done teaching the constellation and and maybe this would be true, you know, people who read how to be unlucky. Um, my students tend to think of Boethius in terms of the stories I've told to make Boethius clear. And, and I don't know that they're, that my students are distinguishing, you know, between the Hastings story, um, that I tell and Boethius's claim, he who has much wants much. I, I think that those things kind of go together for them. Um, and so, you know, if they like the consolation, they also kind of like everything that goes along with the consolation. I mean, they might not like it if they just sat down and read it on its own, but I mean, yeah, I would say my students tend to like it. Yeah. When did you sort of, well, one of the big parts of the book of how to be unlucky is the idea of sort of educating towards virtue. Right. When did, when did that sort of come into focus for you? We probably need to wrap this up soon, but when did that come into focus for you and how did this book sort of play into that? I mean, when you started teaching at 28 or 29 or whatever you said it was, were you at that point where you saying I'm in this because you know, the goal of what I'm doing here is to virtuous people. So no, that, that was not the language that was, that was a kind of buried intent that I had, but that wasn't the language that I used. Right. The, la- the, the language of virtue became, uh, became something that I, I actively pursued. Um, I think after I went to, uh, the Alcuin retreat in Grand Rapids, Michigan, six years ago. Um, and, uh, that was where, um, uh, I think that's, um, that's where I met Andrew Karen for the first time. Um, I was at that conference when I heard somebody quote, uh, I'm probably going to mangle the quote a little bit, but Walker Percy's, um, what does it matter if you get all A's, if you flunk at life? Um, uh, I, that was, I think I, I overheard, um, your father say uh, something like, uh, a classical school has to be willing to die. Um, and those, those claims kind of got me moving more toward, um, the language of virtue in, in the way that I taught. Um, and I also began at that point really rethinking, um, my philosophy of testing and quizzing. Um, and that's kind of when virtue as a, as a, as a discrete grammar kind of entered into my classroom. Hmm. So how did that change your classroom? Um, I think that's mean, how did it manifest itself? Yeah. Um, 
Uh, I was a bit, um, when I first started teaching, I was a, I was kind of a, kind of jaded on, on the subject of grades and, um, and I was a, was a terrible, uh, offender so far as grade inflation was concerned when I first began teaching, um, what, what I really wanted, and it didn't take me more than a year to figure this out, um, uh, that if you give students good grades, everybody will leave you alone. <laughs> um, uh, if, um, yeah, true. um, which is, which is something that I, um, and I kind of accepted this, uh, with a, with a cynical attitude. Um, and when virtue formation became a, you know, a thing that I spoke about in the classroom, uh, inflation kind of began to go away. And, um, because, I, because the grades mattered less good or bad, like the specific um, number they were getting. Yeah. And I also wanted to, I also wanted to start using grades, um, not to get people off my back, but I wanted to start using grades in a, a psychologically realistic sort of way. Um, you mean like, you mean like in a way that was truly assessing the things that needed to be assessed? Um, I try to evaluate my students in terms of grades in a way that reflects the way that people grade and evaluate things in the world outside of school. So, uh, uh, okay. So, uh, the most common grade that I give, uh, is an 84. Um, so I, I really try to mainly keep my grades to 74, 84 and 94. Um, and I explained to my students in 84 means good, not great. You covered the subject. You didn't say anything that was surprising, but you didn't really let me down. Um, this is a grade that's like you go to a restaurant for the first time and the food is okay. And you don't think that you really need to ever come back, but you weren't really disappointed. It was just fine. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, that's what an 84 means. An 84 means like, I don't really feel the need to, um, explain this grade other than you did fine. You didn't really mess anything up. It, it's okay. Um, uh, but an 84 is also like, this is not really ambitious work. There were no risks taken here. This is just kind of middle of the road. Uh, an 84 means I see a lot of first impressions here. Um, why, why, like why an 84, but not like an 85, like, um, and 80, like in 84 is, uh, I mean, that's what I, th I, I think of a, I think of an 84 and this might be, you know, great in, you know, great inflation generation talking here, but I think of an 84 is the most average score you can possibly give. I mean, uh, other people would probably take exception to that, but, um, when well, I think you're of a teacher, eight, you can do whatever you want. I'm just, I'm just curious. <laughs> uh, I mean, it very well could, I mean, when I was kind of putting this, this idea together and kind of writing my rules of decorum, I, it could have been an 82, 72 and, and 92, yeah, but yeah, yeah. the, the 84 struck me as, as this kind of maudlin grade, uh, a grade that was not going to <laughs> excite anyone, mm -hmm. but was not going to deeply disappoint anyone either. Yeah. Um, I guess if you get to 85, you get to that five point and psychologically it feels a tad bit more than that 84. We like, could round this up to a 90. Yeah, we accomplished something. <laughs> right. Um, whereas I think of an 84 as like uh, room temperature water. Um, it's, uh, 
it's completely inoffensive. Is that uh, more uh, psychologically um, impactful to a student than just saying like a B minus? Um, I think that once a student knows what a B minus means, it is. But you have to. I think that you have to establish. The teacher has to establish the meaning of an 80, of 74, 84, 94, if you're going to use those grades. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, like by the end of the, by the end of this school year, this last school year, I had graded over, it must've been somewhere around 1300 quizzes and tests. And I gave 11 perfect scores all year, 11, 100%. Um, and uh, that's not on, I mean, that's on like actual written work. I give, you know, reading quizzes from time to time and you might get like a three out of three on those. But in terms of a 100%, um, I only wrote that score 11 times. Um, and I would typically announce it when I was giving it out. And every student that I have knows what a 100 means because I wrote this little description of what it means to get a 100. Um, hmm. to, to get a 100 means you your work could be easily confused with adult work this sounds like something someone 10 years older than a high school student would write um there's not only ambition manifested in this work but some achievement of high goals um this is worth reading twice i might need to read this twice to understand it not because it's poorly written but because it's well written Hmm. Um, and I, I'm only gave that out, uh, you know, a handful of times and it, and it meant something because I, man, I dished out a lot of 84s and 74s over the course of the year. Um, yeah, yeah. so, so, I mean, I think that that I want to try to establish, yeah, realistic grades, psychologically realistic grades. Um, so that, you know, the average student who does average work doesn't have, um, doesn't have an overinflated sense of, of what their work is worth, but also so that there's a kind of verbal accompaniment to the grade. So, I mean, I would rather students think of the descriptions of the grades than the grades themselves. I, I guess it, it might be worth my time to just write out the descriptions of what each of the grades means at the top of the paper, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to a number, but yeah, yeah. that's what I'm working with right now. Well, you know, kids got to do something with that. Got to like do some interpretation of it. <laughs> I guess this is true. <laughs> well, um, we should, I should probably, you and I should probably sit down and just record a whole conversation on a, not a debate, but just a whole conversation on grades and how that works. Um, that would be, that would be fun. Well, for the sake of time, we should probably wrap this up for today, but congratulations on, on uh, how to be unlucky. I, I really like this book. I mean, I, I, I'm not just saying that because we published it um, and I, and I kind of worked on it a little bit with you. Right. Actually, I didn't really work on it. I just read it and gave you some notes. Let's be honest. Um, but um, you know, I really like this book and I'm, I, I think it's a great book. I, I hope a lot of people buy it obviously, but um, I, th I think it's an accomplishment. Put it that way. Thank um, you. So thank you for, for writing that. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I think it's going to be meaningful to a lot of people. I hope so. I hope so. Um, and, and thank you, of course, for being on the show this week. Um, people want to find out more about you in particular. Should they, what do you want to follow you on Twitter? Yeah. Um, no, <laughs> 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 uh, go through, I would say go through old articles on 
uh, the Cedar Room, my column on, on Cersei's website. Uh, although I guess if you want to see uh, if you want to see the dank memes that I make, you could look at my Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there is a place for that apparently on the internet. So people I, I, into that sort of thing. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, what are you doing? <laughs> That's um, what Twitter is for. Dank ex- memes. Exactly. It's for like testing your stuff, testing your material. That's right. Um, well, again, thank you for joining me. Thank you for the for writing this book. And uh, we will talk to you soon. All right. Thank you, David. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.